when I made my first major purchase, uh, over-the-counter Bitcoin purchase, the market dropped 60% in 48 hours. I didn't even have it on a platform to be able to hedge until 24 hours into this unbelievable pullback mm. that was still it will go down in the history books as one of the most epic crashes uh in crypto history so that was uh so i've had some amazing luck <laughs> oh and i've also had some wildly you know statistical improbability bad luck but isn't too. that the story of the entrepreneur i mean every entrepreneur learns more from their failure than they learn from their success and so Absolutely. you're going to have failures you're going to have successes and you can't you can, you can plan as much as you want but it's your ability to adapt to those things In today's ultra-competitive business world, being a successful entrepreneur or business owner can be very challenging. Fortunately, contemporary times have blessed us with resources for tackling those challenges and getting us to success more quickly than we could have imagined. Welcome to The Root of All Success with The Real Jason Duncan, a podcast that explores how the world's most powerful entrepreneurs grow incredible companies. This podcast looks at the five keys to unlocking success as an entrepreneur. A successful educator turned entrepreneur, Jason's mission is to use his gifts of teaching and leadership to help others get the results they want out of life. Join Jason every week and learn the keys to grow a truly successful business. I'm the real Jason Duncan and welcome to the Root of All Success. I'm so glad that you tuned in today on your podcast player or here on YouTube. If you're listening on a podcast player, I would appreciate it if you give us a five-star review. If for some reason you can't give us one or don't think it deserves it, send me an email because I want to be I want to put together a show that you like and think that's worthy of a five-star review. So leave us that review. And if you're not watching this on YouTube, you've got to at least go watch an episode or two because we record this at the Standard of the Smith House in Nashville, Tennessee. It's the oldest still-standing antebellum home in downtown Nashville. It's 18,000 square feet of southern sophistication and style, owned and operated by the one and only Joshua Sterling Smith, the proprietor here. And we're using his, what we affectionately refer to as Josh's office as our recording studio. We used to do this, for those of you that have been watching the YouTube uh, channel, we used to do this in the Matador room, but we felt like we should do it sitting in uh, big leather chairs, smoking cigars, rather than sitting across the table in the Matador room. So today, we're sitting here with my guest. We both have a Nashville Crown Head Cigar Four Kicks, Four Kicks Cigars, and we're drinking a little Nashville bourbon called Guidance Whiskey. So if you're watching it on YouTube, you can see me and the guest enjoying, uh, enjoying these Nashville things today as we're here in Nashville, Tennessee. This podcast is syndicated on the C-Suite Radio Network, so we're very grateful to be part of their syndication network that pushes us out to all the podcast players. If, you're, if you've got a podcast player, we can, we're on there, so the root of all success is there. If you are interested as an entrepreneur in business coaching, but you haven't yet pulled the trigger to hire a business coach, I want to give you something for free. I give one entrepreneur somewhere in the world a free hour. That's right, 100% free hour with me one-on-one -on -one every single week. I give one entrepreneur that opportunity for business coaching. So it's the real Jason Duncan with one real entrepreneur dealing with one real issue one hour every single week. And if you are interested in applying to get that one hour that I give away every single week, you can go to my website at therealjasonduncan.com slash free coaching. 
and you just fill out the application. It's very short, first name, last name, email, and the issue you want me to coach you on. My team looks at all those applications every week. We pick one person, and that one lucky person gets a free hour with me. So if you want to do that, just go to therealjasonduncan.com slash free coaching. So uh, I already mentioned that we're here in the Standard. We, uh, we're in Josh's office here at the Standard. If you ever come to Nashville, make sure you look me up. And uh, if you're into cigars or steaks or whiskey or bourbon or rum or fine wines, this is the place you want to come. It's my happy place. I absolutely love being here at the Standard. I'm honored to be a member and friends with the owner, Josh. Glad to, uh, glad to be able to do the show here from his office at the Standard. Our sponsor for today's episode is 8Bend Marketing, and that's the number 8Bend Marketing. They're based in Chattanooga, Tennessee. They're one of the world's foremost story brand marketing companies. And the reason they are the sponsor and how I know about them is that one of my coaching clients used them to come up with their story brand messaging for their company. And so I coach, I coach entrepreneurs all over the world, and this one particular customer of mine came to me and said, hey, our marketing company just came up with our new story, uh, our messaging, I want you to look at it. And I was blown away. I mean, words are the only thing that we can really use one-on-one to explain what it is that we do. And words that you choose are very important. And I know what it's like as an entrepreneur who owns eight businesses. I had four others that I've started and sold. I, I know that I can spend and waste a lot of money on marketing. And you probably have done the same thing. So 8Bend has a special program specifically for small businesses just like yours that they take you through the step-by-step process to come up with your story brand message to figure out exactly what your core message is and explain it in a way that makes sense and it's easy to understand. They've got a special offer for listeners of the Root of All Success podcast. You go to their website. It's the number 8Bend, 8B-E-N-D dot marketing slash root as in root of all success. So go to 8bin.marketing slash root for a special offer just for listeners of the podcast to help you get your messaging correct. Now, on with the show. Let's talk about my guest today. Now, I met this guy, and I'm going to tell you who he is in a few minutes, in a couple minutes. I met this guy one night here at the Standard. He came in with his whole entourage, which you'll, you'll talk about his entourage. But my, I was here with a friend of mine, and we were leaving. And it was like, I don't know, 1030. We were leaving. It was a Friday or Saturday night. And we were walking out, and we were on our way out. And we stopped to talk to them as they came in. And I think a couple of hours later, we finally got in the car and went home. And this guy was so very interesting. I said, man, I really think your story should be on my podcast. He's got a lot of really interesting, interesting things that have happened to him in his 38 years on this planet. He started out uh, his entrepreneurial journey as a 12-year-old tw- printing advertising flyers on his dad's computer and employing his friends to go put them on cars at the mall <laughs> down in Brentwood, Tennessee, just, just south of Nashville. But then he went on in, uh, in college, and one of his, uh, uh, his final project was so innovative, it gave him a start into a real estate career. And he started a company. He was the president of Premier Development Partners, where he directed, designed, and titled, did government approvals and, and construction of commercial development properties. And then he uh, started a company called Eyes Only, which is a digital gateway to lasting memories, which we, he can talk a little bit about what that company was. Uh, but what I think is probably the most interesting, although not necessarily entrepreneurial, but we will start there. He spent three years as a professional poker player traveling the world playing poker. And I'm going to ask him about that in just a minute. Uh, in 2017, as the world was introduced to cryptocurrency, he actually started AmeriCoin Capital 
And uh, that story of how he got into cryptocurrency and made it one of the largest and, well, one of the first cryptocurrency traders that came on the market, he's got a really interesting story about that cryptocurrency because I know at least now in 2021, we've got tons of cryptocurrency news going on in the world, good and bad. And this guy is somebody that could tell us a little bit about what the good and the bad really is. But one of the biggest things that he's doing right now is he is the uh, he's with Spintel. He's the founder of Spintel, which provides business intelligence to music promoters and artists for song performance opportunities for growth, etc. And that company is like a rocket ship. It is going. I've met some of his partners in that company, and they're all major A players. And that that among all those other things is very interesting to me, and I know that will be very interesting to you. So without any further ado, because that was a big buildup, <laughs> I want to introduce you to my guest for today's show, The Root of All Success, Lance Goodman. So Lance, it is an honor to see you, man. It's an honor to be here. And uh, I'm glad we get to smoke a little cigars. Absolutely. Drink a little Lo local, too. Mm -hmm. Got favorite. a little local cigar. So I, I know that I want to know, and I know the listeners want to know, three years as a professional poker player, like how did that come about? How did you start that? And like that, that's who does that? Who does that? <laughs> More than you think, actually. So really? it's a, it was a interesting story. So um, back in college, that was when the, really the online poker boom came about. That's when party poker emerged. That's when some of these early companies, and it was like the Wild West. I think I'm attracted to like Wild West opportunities where it's just. Uh, gunslingers, it hasn't really been solidified yet. I think that's part of my crypto passion as well. Uh, but what was so interesting about it, so there was all of these guys all around the world and, and women all around the world that started playing online poker and it became this huge industry, multi-billion dollar industry almost overnight. And um, I mean, they, it got to where, especially in the American market, there was hundreds of millions up for grabs every weekend uh, on full tilt and poker stars. and. Uh, I mean, I know so many guys that were even more successful than I was uh, that have made millions and millions. And this was the, about the time when ESPN put on the World Series of Poker on their main broadcast. And um, Chris Moneymaker won, another Nashville guy. Yes, I remember that and name. He was pretty much the, what catapulted um, poker into the stratosphere. So at that time, and I haven't looked up the data on this, but there was more 20-year-old millionaires in poker than any other market segments in American history. What? Yeah, it's a true story. So uh, kind of what was crazy about it, um, so during the heydays, uh, Harry Reid was the Senate Majority Leader from Nevada, and they, uh, they were always able to capture all of the any kind of gambling... Uh, even though poker's not gambling, the Supreme Court says it's a game of skill, of which it is. There's gambling elements, but the Supreme Court says it's a game of skill. Uh, I'll get back to why that's funny. Um, but he basically shut down, it's called Black Friday, shut down the entire American market. So all of these, I mean, these are MIT, these are game theory experts, these are unbelievably brilliant minds that dropped everything to pursue a poker career, and he basically shut it down overnight. So they, uh, they captured hundreds of millions of players' funds, and we didn't get them back for four and five years later until it was all adjudicated through court systems. And it basically made all of these brilliant minds that had you know, made a decision to move into this as a living, in which they were making a phenomenal living, a lot of more money than they'd ever made in their lives. And uh, it was totally shut down by uh, government encroachment on this amazing emerging market. 
So it was a, it was a fascinating story. So that's when I actually, uh, it's funny, I went from $8 in my uh, account in college. I remember I was like figuring out if I was going to be a dollar millionaire at McDonald's <laughs> or, or Wendy's. And uh, ended up playing uh, some of the Sunday major tournaments and got sixth place uh, in a Sunday millions for uh, 69000 And it was in my account in 24 hours. Let's just say I'm pretty sure I bought everyone a shot on campus that week. <laughs> <laughs> so you went from maybe having to buy McDonald's or Wendy's on the dollar menu to $69,000 in your bank account. That's right. What year did the shutdown of the industry happen? What year was that? I want to say that was like oh four oh five. Yeah, because I I mean I've played I've played maybe, my share. Of maybe poker, even a little bit after that. Maybe I'm thinking it might have been like nine ten. I'm really bad with dates. Uh, well, it doesn't matter. <laughs> I, I don't I don't remember that happening because I wasn't in that world. But it 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 surprises me, and then it doesn't surprise me. I mean, we just came through twenty twenty and and all the the shutdowns. One in tw- one in four businesses in Tennessee were were uh, were closed as a result of what happened through the pandemic and, and so heartbreaking. yeah it's heartbreaking and 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 a lot of that has to do of course with the unfortunate circumstances surrounding covid just in general but a lot of it was about as you use the term government encroachment on an industry and i think that's that's the sad part about all of this so but poker poker is a very interesting story and i have i've never met a professional poker player you're the first well, I didn't want to be. I mean, well, I was I was good at it, and I I think at that point when I was getting out of college, I had uh, my total winnings were like around three or four million, and I mean, obviously, the best poker players in the world only cash in twenty to twenty five percent of the events they play in. So, a lot of that is, I mean, ROI. I probably made a little under a million bucks playing, but that was part time while I was, you know, dipping my toe in all kinds of waters and. Uh, trying, you know, different different avenues to make. I, didn't, I knew I didn't want to be a professional poker player, uh, although it sounded cool. It does sound cool, which and is it was why making I... a lot of money. It's, it's like a lot of the guys are, are you know, it's, it's probably male dominated a lot, but women have an unbelievable advantage at a poker table, uh, and there's some brilliant, some of the best poker players in the world are uh, are women. Uh, that's kind of a funny dynamic at a table too. That women are so much more powerful than men at a poker table. Let me tell you. Wow. <laughs> that's, that could get into a whole nother, uh, uh, conversation, but, um, there's a lot of us that, you know, they, I mean, these were like some brilliant minds, like probability and statistics, geniuses and, uh, game theory experts from MIT, kind of like the blackjack movie that came out, uh, uh, a while ago, the MIT squad that I was literally playing against all of those folks. And it okay. was, uh, that's interesting. Well, the other interesting part about you that I didn't put in the, uh, I didn't say in the intro, but it was inferred is that you're a Nashville guy. Like you, you and I, I think are the last two people from Nashville that are actually still in Nashville, right? You're the, <laughs> we're the last of the Mohicans. Uh, <laughs> so you grew up South of last Nashville of our tribe. and I grew up North of Nashville, but we're both Nashville guys. There's not a lot of people that I run into here at the standard or any other place in Nashville. They're like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm a Nashville guy. There's not very many of us. So you got your entrepreneurial start as a young kid doing advertising. So what, what, what were you advertising back then? Oh, that's a funny story. So I've always just tried to find angles and uh, been very independent. Never wanted to like ask my parents for money. They would always put some, you know, like rules on the money and I'd have to do all these things. I'm not a big rule person. I don't, I don't, I like to follow the ones that matter. But, uh, you know, uh, barriers. So my dad would be like, hey, you got to do this, 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 this for 10 bucks. And I'm like, 
I'll make more than that and I won't have to do any of that. So uh, I was like, can I use your computer? And he, uh, he let me use his computer. He goes, have at it. You want to, because he, he always cultivated my entrepreneurial kind of itch that I had. And he's like, go ahead and try it and see what you can do. Because he literally wanted me to just go back to doing my chores because I thought I could do better. But he's a smart guy and he wanted me to fail and learn from it. But uh, I basically rounded up a couple of my friends and we all had bicycles at work. The, the Cool Springs Mall went from a cow field with a water tower to an unbelievable mall we couldn't believe was there. So I lived on Moore's Lane when it was just two little roads, country back roads. Uh, which you probably get a kick out uh, of yeah, in Nashville. Um, and basically I went down and I, I remember Pizza Nizza. I went down and rode my bike down there and I pitched him. I was like, if you hire me, I'll have all my friends and we'll put all flyers on uh, cars in the mall parking lot. And he did. And I was probably like 12 or 13 years old. I don't think you can do that anymore. It's probably getting thrown <laughs> in prison for like child labor laws. But uh, he hired me and I remember he paid us like, hundred bucks every time we did it and it was uh it was like the most money in the world and it like really was like a foundational thing in like my entrepreneurial journey to have these little wins like ingrained in your head at that age is something we should probably try and recreate for every 12 year old to have you know that imaginative spirit of like hey i can create something from nothing and then i i, I remember i got a couple apartment complexes the landings right across the street uh, they paid us to do it, and we ended up having four or five clients. I had to hire more friends with bicycles. <laughs> I was, I was, I and was you're 12. I was scaling at 12 years old. I didn't even really, I had no idea what I was doing. I did, but it was fun. It was fun. It was cool to be able to go in at 12 years old and convince these like, uh, you know, multi-million dollar apartment complexes, and uh, to, and they're just like, hey, these kids are hustling. They're gonna do what they say they're gonna do. They're uh, it was it was a fun experience. So at, at twelve, you're doing this entrepreneurial thing, and you're getting that bug. You're you're getting it. So I got to ask about the pizza pizza guy. Is pizza pizza still around? It is not. So do you did you ever go back to that guy and say, hey man, you don't have any idea what you did to me, but like I am now the CEO of this huge company, and like at twelve, he you know what? You That's out. a great idea. I wish I could find him. I remember he was like he was a he was probably sixty at the time. So if he's still around, he's doing good. But he was a old Middle Eastern guy that was sad, like a savvy kind of immigrant type that is got skin thicker than ten of us combined. And he, you know, I went in and pitched him. I was scared to death. I was nervous, and I was like, "Well," and I just went in there and just did it anyways, right? And he's like, "Okay." He's like, "You got some, you know, you got some of this." <laughs> <laughs> so he did, he tried it out, and we did, and he increased his sales, and he's like. You're, the, you're amazing. We got to do this once a week. And then all of a sudden, I was like, hey, let's go pitch some other people wow. and get that confidence up. And next thing you know, I'm a bicycle news boy. I think we called ourselves the Newsboys. The Newsboys. Yeah. Okay. It so was, uh, it was so, fun. So that guy, if we if he's still yeah, around, if we can find him, I uh, if he's still around, you should go back and buy him a drink or, or dinner or something. Because that's a at that's least a, that person. That's a and, and as we talk through the show today. Well, I'm going to talk about the five keys of success, and one of them is knowing the right people. And so that guy, unbeknownst to you at the time, helped catapult you into your your successful life as an entrepreneur. So now, but your story continues. So at 12, you're doing that for a few years. But but in college, you did this project 
that was an innovative project in the real estate space. Tell, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I went to uh, University of Tennessee for three years and did the whole fraternity thing and had a blast and, you know, did it just, I've always in school just done just enough not to get kicked out unless it was a class that I was really passionate about and then I'd crush that class, right? I loved it. I'd uh, be a sponge. If I had a great professor, I couldn't wait to go to that class. But overall, it's hard. I think I feel like it's hard to get that in every class. There's a lot of universities out there that are have amazing staff at the highest level. But some of those entry level freshman sophomore classes, it's not you don't you know you don't have Einstein teaching you or anything. But um, it uh, so basically I uh, transferred to MTSU because I wanted to get serious. So I wanted to get serious about my life, and uh, that's when I had just won a few of those online poker events and got this capital together. And then I started taking myself seriously. I started taking opportunities seriously. And uh, so I transferred to, they just started an entrepreneurship program at MTSU. So I was like, that's, that's what I'm passionate about. I want to learn everything about how to you know, cultivate and run a small business, to scale it, make it into a big business, exits. I was into all of that. So I had this capital and uh, transferred over in my senior year, I put together an office condo project that was really successful out on the West Coast. It was uh, basically Class A office condos that were built, demised, and sold like regular condos, but with Class A finishes, like underground reserve parking, balconies. It's for like family offices, boutique offices, not a, like large growth, where you can own your space, take advantage of all of the ownership you know, from a tax standpoint, and. Uh, let small business owners own their own space. So it was really successful out there. So it had never been done here before. Uh, so I brought that over here and I used, um, actually this is a pretty epic story. I remember I had like 60,000 left and I was like, you know what? There was this perfect development in Franklin um, and I optioned three of these commercial lots for this office condo project to put together. So I got it all designed out. I had the civil engineering done. I took it through the city planning commission when I had no idea what I was doing. Good thing I hired the right people to help me with the engineers and the architects that, that helped, helped guide, uh, guide it through. But what well, was funny, at the same time, I was getting my real estate license. So I'd gotten my real estate license. My senior years is all happening at the same time. So I knew I wanted my license. I had to have my license, and I wanted to be a real estate developer. Um, and I was doing it. So I got my license uh, through a friend of mine's father who financed a brokerage in town. So I was working with this guy. I was like, so I got my license. I was like, so what do I do now? What, what, what's up? What, I want to go sell a home or something. What do, we, what do we do next? And he goes, answer the phones if they ring and do searches for me. I'm like, all right, whatever, whatever we need. The first phone call I got, I answer the phone, and this guy goes, Hi, I'm an investor from California. I'm here to buy, and my real estate agent stood me up at the airport. If you come get me right now, I already know what I want to buy. I'll buy it from you. And he was pissed. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, man, this is a weird first call. I'm like, I'm going to get stabbed and thrown in a ditch, or this could work out brilliantly. So I literally I called up the uh, broker I was working for. He goes, yeah, if you feel comfortable, they go pick him up. He like didn't, I'm like, are you worried about me at all? He's like, I'll get another one. <laughs> <laughs> it was your first day. You're easily replaceable. That's right. I'll get somebody else to do it. So the guy from California calls you, says, hey, hey my, my other real estate guy stood me up, didn't pick me up at the airport. You come, And so you go to the airport and pick the guy up? I went to the airport and picked him up. 
Okay. And uh, he knew exactly what he wanted. He knew exactly what he wanted to buy. Uh, I drove him out to Cool Springs. I had never even worked an MLS key before, so I didn't even literally know how to let him in these homes. It was, uh, I was like, I remember Googling the instructions and like reading them where he couldn't see me, like, because I, had, I hadn't even done that yet. So it was literally my first day ever having a license. Uh, drove out there, he bought four new construction homes from me that day. It, it was, I mean, it was just magic. It was serendipitous. Like, it was, uh, it feels like this is a, like, not true story, but it's 100% true. So he bought four from me that day, and he goes, uh, Lance, I like you. He goes, do you, uh, do you manage properties? Because I need someone to manage these. And I was like, I can figure it out. I'll manage them, sure. And uh, he goes, all right, you're the manager of these properties. So he made me, like, 60 grand in commission the first day I ever had my license, first phone call I ever answered. On top of the 60000 that I'd already spent uh, getting the options on these properties and getting, uh, you know, doing all of the due diligence and the pre-development work. And uh, I showed, I go, you know what? I also am doing this deal. And I showed him my whole pro forma that I put together for my senior year and all of our plans. And uh, he goes, I like this. He goes, can I be an investor? And I'm like, um... I don't know how that works. Sure, yeah, you can be an investor. We'll figure it out. Uh, and he goes, great. Uh, he goes, you're, you're something else. Uh, this is going to be a fruitful venture. And he, bought it. literally, I drop him back off at the airport after we sign all these contracts. And he wired me $100,000 for this deal. <laughs> this is a true story. <laughs> and I didn't even know what to do with mine. I was like, I, did, I like, had to spent a bunch of time with my lawyers trying to figure out I'm like he didn't even ask me like what term sheet yeah he didn't even Nothing. he was like I believe in it here's a hundred thousand and he was this old school general contractor uh, from Sacramento and he had been doing airport work forever so I'm sure that was a profitable venture and this was in uh, like 2005 2006 so this was when real estate was just out of control with the subprime lending the the huge bubble that they created with derivatives like it was just during this like huge bubble era so uh he had been making tons of money in 1031 exchanges where he had to identify uh come to find out that was what it was he needed to identify a new uh a new property to roll over some of his proceeds from other real estate deals uh but i was the lucky recipient of it wow and that put me on uh the next level of just kind of getting the attention of you know the banks and people in Nashville that I needed to actually pull it off. You still in touch with him? Uh, yeah. Wow. Uh, I am. <laughs> yeah. he, he's getting older, and uh, but yeah, he's that's pretty great. pretty amazing. Well, so let's uh, fast forward your career into cryptocurrency because uh, that's a hot topic right now in 2021. Yes. You got into cryptocurrency in 17. So you've been in it a little bit, you know, when I met you the first night we met, I, I, that came up and I asked you how much you knew about it. You're like, dude, I, I, I know this stuff. This is what I know. This is what I do. So how did you get into it? Like, what was your entry into crypto? Well, I think I put together, so I understood the power of the blockchain, the technology behind cryptocurrency, and I knew how it was going to disrupt so many different industries. Because uh, there's these all these uh, kind of layers, like the tort layers, banking layers, that you have to get through to do any kind of business, right? And 
really what blockchain was for me was it was a decentralizing banks. So that was the big part of you never you don't have to have Bank of America keep up with your ledger and when you run a credit card you don't have to have Bank of America say hey I know he has the funds and then take a big cut to get that to right. whoever it needs to go to right so that was like my first like epiphany of like this is going to change the game and that's so fascinating to me to be on like the disruptive front end even if it I've been a loss leader a lot of times right just by doing things before they've matured or accepted by you know, major institutions in a certain vertical or whatever. Um, but I basically was just a passionate, you know, uh, enthusiast of blockchain and cryptocurrency in its early stages and just watched it mature over, over time and knew that once the acceptance got there and it became like where you could go pay for Bitcoin for a Subway sandwich or if it got, ever got to that point, that's when it was going to take over. So anyway, it was just fascinating to me, and I had a lot of uh, high net worth friends that uh, wanted to, you know, diversify their portfolio into crypto because it's the the FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. Everyone's like, how do I get in? You know, and these are wealthy people. They don't want to buy a thousand dollars. They want to buy a hundred thousand dollars, and that's a totally different proposition of buying that much of a cryptocurrency at once. So what was your fund doing? What, what were you doing with so that? So the fund, uh, it was a commodities Reg D fund, a $50 million fund. Uh, so what the SEC had done is they uh, basically classified cryptocurrency as a commodity. So you were, we were able to create this fund that they already had kind of pre-constructed around other uh, different verticals in the commodities game, like bread, wheat, corn, soy, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, they allowed us to create an entity for crypto under that. So basically what we did, I took a very conservative approach. It was just basically for high net worth individuals that wanted to diversify into crypto. I would basically buy the large cap coins and I would diversify a little bit into the mid cap coins and then emerging projects that I really liked. We do about 25% of our fund strategy was getting in the, the, you know, the foundational layer of really, uh, products and projects that I think could be extremely successful. So it worked. It was conservative strategy in a very volatile, very volatile asset class that was emerging. And uh, it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done because you have to have you have to have a fund administrator that knows crypto and APIs. And uh, that was hard. I only could find one out of Manhattan um, that would even work with me in America because I mean, the, uh, we were the 57th ever cryptocurrency fund in the world, and very few were in America at that point because it was it was really like in the early stages of the SEC working with this emerging market to uh, to figure out how to work with it. Not necessarily like trying to tamper it down, but just figuring it out. It takes years to figure out something of this revolutionary uh, and how the SEC can you know regulate it and uh, you know and all the other federal bureaucracies mm. to kind of figure out, you know, even KYC, AML type stuff was hard. Uh, finding a commercial bank was hard. We had to use the Bank of Montreal. So I had to like piece this together from all over the world to just put the pieces together to do it. Found a law firm in town that was on the forefront of this because they had a, uh, some crypto and blockchain advocates as junior members. So uh, we partnered with them to do all of our uh, legal filings and all of our subscription documents and 
get everything out the door, it was unbelievably difficult. And I started that the same time I started Spintel. So those were two, uh, but Spintel was just kind of emerging. It's kind of like in my incubator of ideas at that time. So uh, uh, they kind of shot out of the gate at the same time. Does, is your crypto fund still active? Are you still doing that? So I, uh, it's, it's still active, but I've retired it. So I don't have any outside investors um, just because I couldn't do both at the same time. Because yeah. Spintel started getting legs at about time the cryptocurrency market crashed. When I made my first major purchase, uh, over-the-counter Bitcoin purchase, the market dropped 60% in 48 hours. I didn't even have it on a platform to be able to hedge until 24 hours into this unbelievable pullback mm. that was still going down in the history books as one of the most epic crashes uh, in crypto history. So that was, uh, so I've had some amazing luck. <laughs> oh. And I've also had some wildly, you know, statistical improbability, bad luck. But isn't too. that the story of the entrepreneur? I mean, every entrepreneur learns more from their failure than they learn from their success. And so Absolutely. you're going to have failures, you're going to have successes and you can't, you can, you can plan as much as you want, but it's your ability to adapt to those things. And I love what you, I love what you just said about, you know, Spintel's getting legs, which I want to talk about in a moment. But, but so you had to kind of let the fund go by the wayside because he who chases two rabbits catches neither. <laughs> Beautiful way yes. to say it. So you, so you, you hooked up and said, I'm going to, I'm going to chase the rabbit of Spintel. So tell, tell me the story of Spintel. Cause I, I've heard parts of the story and I love what you're doing. I love the concept. So tell, tell me a little bit about how that got started and what the genesis was of, of that story. Yeah, so I guess to take it back to, uh, so I've, you know, I was in all this real the real estate plays and doing the, uh, the online poker and still fading out kind of the online poker stuff. But uh, once I got back uh, from playing, uh, well, so I guess I'll take another step back. So the, the economy crashed in 2008 uh, due to the subprime lending. So there's this huge credit crunch and all of this stuff I knew had to be worked out. It would probably be two years before people were actively, like proactively lending again, construction loans, and it turned out to be about right. Uh, so that's when I had standing offers from a couple of uh, poker companies to be a, a poker pro. So they'd sponsor me. All I had to do was do interviews and wear their, uh, wear their shirts, and they basically would put me up in the nicest accommodations around the world and I pay my entry into tournaments and anything I want, I got to keep. So it was a pretty cool deal. Um, so did that for about two, two and a half years, uh, made a final table in the Asian World Championship in Macau, China, got to see and experience all these things. And I really think that's why I was meant to do that, was just kind of experience the world on a new level and come back with all that knowledge and uh, network and resources from doing that uh, but I didn't want to live out of casinos my whole life it's I'm a I'm an empathic person and you know seeing you know old people at 10 a.m. just pulling that lever with just misery in their face I just couldn't take it for much longer but uh, anyways uh, fast forward so I got out of the uh, real estate collapse I, I still had some money left and I found these really two brilliant guys at Vanderbilt that had this great idea for an app uh, and it was basically working with um, different um, like family offices, uh, big time financial managers, uh, where we curate experiences for the high net worth and ultra high net worth 
uh, class. Uh, basically, it, it's like an add-on value to managing their money. A lot of them are like full service now. They even get your laundry cleaned for you. I mean, they, they do everything. Uh, but that was, this was kind of the first part of that kind of emerging concept of like a full service, like family office for hire type concept for you know people with 10 million plus dollars. So what we did is we, we literally scoured the world. Uh, these two Vanderbilt kids had this brilliant idea. They had a great rap to it, a great brand, uh, did some of the initial tech development work. Um, but I came in and I, was, I didn't really know anything about technology, but I knew how to raise capital. I knew how to put deals together. I knew how to put together the team he would need to pull something like this off, strategic relationships. So that was my first foray into technology was kind of, uh, and I didn't found it or anything. I just helped him raise capital and um, really just put to the plant all the seeds that he would need to really make that company grow. Um, and it went in a direction that I didn't really agree with. So uh, me and my partner, Dane McFarland, we started uh, Sominus Technology, and it basically was an incubator for our own ideas. So we would hire kind of young, really brilliant coders and developers, and uh, we'd come up with an idea and, and see, if, uh, see if we could pull it off and just kind of take it until it had no legs. Uh, but we'd also do work for higher stuff. So we, we built an industrial torque wrench technology that's used all around the world now, and I had no idea how to code the first line or anything about industrial torque wrenches. We pulled it off, and it's used. And a huge internet multinational company bought it for a lot of money. Uh, we built that, and uh, we built a technology stack for a big insurance company. It was uh, all while incubating our own ideas. So this gets back to Spintel. So uh, as I told you in the in the paperwork, it's kind of a funny story. Um, I met our co-founder in a double wide trailer in the middle of Brentwood, the 11th wealthiest county in the nation. Um, it's this unbelievably beautiful, like, uh, I call it like a gateway almost. It's where uh, the guys that just got done landscaping sit and have a cold beverage, and also all the CEOs of major corporations sit at the same bar and have cold beverages at the end of the day, or maybe even close to the end of the day. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone has a blast. No one really talks business. It's just all these different walks of life, but kind of the same souls all uh, interact here. So my partner, Rob Dalton, he, uh, he's been a legend in the music industry for 30 years. So he was uh, vice president of promotion for Sony Records, and this is back in the heyday when CDs were like 30 bucks a pop. They uh, had big budgets. They were rolling out new bands, having a blast, and um, he's, he ended up, over his 30-year career, he's worked at major labels, he's worked at small labels, and he's worked with no label at all. He, started, he was one of the first guys to ever start an independent promotion company outside of the major uh, record label concept. They basically hire him for like down roster artists or artists they're about to drop or did drop. Um, they would hire him and he would make magic happen. Well, how he did this, he was able to decipher through all of this raw terrestrial radio data so to give you a kind of a little bit of backstory of how it works to get a number one hit on radio. So you first have to obviously have new content to put out there in, into the world. And you have a huge promotion team at a major label. At, they've probably got a million and a half just in salaries in any, kind of, any imprint on a major label. And they have multiple imprints. Imprint's basically a record label within a record label. So Universal has four country imprints. BMG has four country imprints. So, and Warner's got three, so, so on. Um, and 
basically, he was able to take this raw data and figure out how many artists were playing in front of him, what their songs were playing in front of him on any particular radio station that had not been added to that station's playlist yet, and then how many behind him that did get added. So he basically people got skipped him in line. So he'd come up with this ratio, the high-low ratio. And he spent 16 hours a week manually deciphering, him and his team manually deciphering this, and that one key performance indicator gave him the ability to, uh, for example, Brooke, uh, or, um, uh, shoot, there's a couple. Scotty McCreary had just gotten uh, dropped from his label. Um, Big and Rich had just gotten dropped from their label. Over, after like a 10-year run at Warner, he got him three number one hits on the next album. And he was able to do this through uh, data analytics. And uh, there was nobody in the industry that were deep diving. All of these labels would try and do kind of their own internal uh, internal work and, and internal reports that they would do. They have a, everyone has a data analytics person in-house. But they do the same stuff. It's the same process. It's not really, it's just like sophisticated spreadsheets to figure this stuff out. So uh, he came to me at this double wide trailer in Brentwood and uh, about four shots of uh, Jack Daniels later and a few cold Miller lights. He drank Bud Light. <laughs> um, I was like, if you're serious, come by the office tomorrow. He drives up his 1969 Camaro looking cooler than I ever could in a million years and uh, comes in and we just, we dive in for about five, six hours that day. And it was, it was just kind of like a light bulb went off. I'm like, I can't believe this is how it's done today. I mean, there, it was, uh, back in the day, it was all relationship driven, right? So it's your promotion team, knowing the program directors and the music directors at all the important stations. For example, in country music, there's 164 stations that really matter. Those are all the major market stations. So every time your song is played on one of those stations, it goes towards working your way up the charts. And if you have three weeks of negative growth, you're pulled from the charts. So you have to have this steady path up the charts and pull 164 strings like a symphony, and you can't burn out a string before the other ones have adopted your song. And it's just this unbelievable like gamification that happens with relationship-based, some statistic-based, but as his career progressed, it got more and more analytical. And then that's where we came in with like the, all the stars aligning to where we created a tech stack to where I can monitor online the streams of all of these stations. And we do 550 now, we're about to expand uh, 2200 stations and cover all formats. Uh, actually, at the end of this month, we'll be expanding. But uh, these were the only stations that mattered in the country format. So there's about 157,000 spins available. If you think of it in real estate terms, there's 157,000 spins. And if you need a, to get a number one hit, you need about 9,000 of them. So you've got to figure out, and your whole team goes out and figures out how to get 9,000. And it can when be, you say spin, you mean a play. Play. A play of that one song. Exactly. Spin as in the old record. You know, yes, record yes. Spin. Okay, I got, yeah. you, I got you. Yeah, actually, usually decipher that. I was like, yeah, play, spin. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, yeah, so, if, and not only that, so it's half the battle to get added to the station's playlist because they only have so many slots. Maybe they're only playing 50 currents, which is a new, you know, new content, new songs. Uh, and you have to be one of those 50 out of 700 that are trying to get that slot. So once you get on, that's one, half the battle. The second part is maximizing when and where you get played. Is it a drive time play or is it an overnight play when no one's listening? So it's to maximize that. So we basically have a data analytics platform, a business intelligence tool built on this database 
for the first time outside the Billboard and iHeartRadio charts, because those are the charts of record, right? Every, every artist wants a number one on Billboard or a number one on the media base iHeart charts. That's how they get the top tours and the top venues at the top price point. So everything is dependent upon new content, breaking new content, and having success with it. And there's a lot of ways you can do it other than radio, but radio still is the most powerful medium to break new content, even to this day, which has kind of surprised me. Uh, it's not really well, living in Music City my whole life, but having zero musical ability. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't play anything? Uh, no, no. If you buy enough bourbon for me, I'll freestyle rap. <laughs> I was in... Uh... That's funny that you mentioned that. I was in Jamaica last week with my wife on, on uh, our anniversary trip, and um, there was a guy we ran into. We, we had taken this hour-and-a-half hour boat ride out to this. Uh, it was called Floyd's Pelican Bar in the middle of the Caribbean on a sandbar, like completely disconnected from the land. And we, we go out there, and we have a great time. But I ran into a guy from San Francisco, and he, he might be listening to the show now because we connected. But uh, he did a freestyle rap. He like pulled his phone out. and said, "Guys, I got a rap." And he did this freestyle rap. And I think it was the same thing. He would uh, been drinking a little bit and <laughs> enjoyed and drinking the rum and enjoyed the freestyle rap. But I won't. I won't make you freestyle rap. But Spintail sounds sure. Yeah. Well, I don't know. We might lose some listeners. Don't do that. But I think that Spintail right now, from what you're telling me, that the analytics, this data, data is driving the world. I mean, Google biggest data company right now. I mean, it's a search, it started as a search company, now it's a data company. And you're developing, uh, not necessarily the Google of, it, of the music industry, but the data of that music industry. So what's next? Like, what are you guys, what, what's the next big plan for Spintel? Because you got some big players with you in this. Yeah, we do. Uh, so some of our, uh, you know, biggest investors and advisors is uh, Joe Galante, the former chairman, CEO of Sony Records, probably most legendary label executive in the country format, uh, probably ever, one of them. Uh, he's our biggest investor. Uh, he, I remember meeting with him, and uh, you know, he, he, he uses his words wisely. I know, I know you really like that, too, because words mean things, right? And he goes, congratulations, guys. You've solved a problem. And he goes, I'm in. And, uh, and he stamped his name on it, and he's had our back ever since. And then... Uh, we got Clint Hyam of Morris Hyam. So we had this label executive that was a true believer, but uh, also I wanted all these other persona types that interact with radio airplay data in different capacities to either be on our board or be an investor. So uh, Joe uh, is close with Clint Hyam of Morris Hyam. That's Kenny Chesney's manager, and they have a whole roster of A-list stars. And uh, he was like, I get it. I'm in. This is we need this. So, and it kind of went like that too. And uh, then Brian Traeger is one of the, probably the biggest talent buyers in the country. He runs all of uh, the night that we met. He was, he was with us as well. So he runs Ascend and Bridgestone and Ryman and almost every, a lot of the venues, uh, the new Quarry venue um, in Williamson County. So he's got about 90% of the market in Nashville. And, uh, and he's like, I get this too. Cause he, 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 you know, interacts with airplay data at a different capacity than these, you know, the other persona types like the labels who are just deep dive into it every day. Well, he needed some to make really critical decisions. So I was able to give him exact data that he needed and whether it be a time frame or if it was like golden hits compared to like a current song or he wants to basically see the market area and what the capacity is to fill that venue up based on consumption data from streaming from sales 
uh, from radio, airplay, and then he's got his own equation. And he was with Live Nation. He's become one of my best friends, and uh, he's on our advisory board. So it was just this amazing group of people that came together that really knew that we were really trying to solve something very, very critical and needed uh, for the industry to kind of take the next step into kind of a relationship-driven promotion efforts into, you know, the relationships will always be there, and that's the important part. But being able to call that program director and being like, look, I'm the second highest song that you're not playing right now in comparable markets. I'm at least in the top 10, and I can't even get an ad from you. You know, and having that data and that, that pitch and that empirical evidence to uh, move the needle a little bit is the difference between, you know, a top 40 song and a top 10 song, believe it or not. Wow. So, so this, this podcast is called The Root of All Success, and I'm only interviewing people like you that are successful entrepreneurs, and you've got a history and a track record of success and failure. Of course, you admitted some of that, about the but more success <laughs> than failures because that's the, that's the trick. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur who fails more than you succeeded, you know, that's not worthy of having a discussion about. But if you have more successes than failures, that's why you're on the show. So what is your definition of success? It's a good question because um, I guess the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and achieving the same results or something. Expecting different Expecting results. a different result. That's it. But you achieve the same result a lot of times. Uh, You've got to have the, the fortitude to last. You, know, you have to be brave and, and tough. And um, I think my definition of success would be when other individuals within the industry that have had amazing success sign on uh, or or the first customers like market validation that's success uh, and it's just only starting the battle of keeping them as a happy client yeah uh, but if you get a if you get those contracts signed when you go from an idea on a bar stool and a double wide trailer to the biggest label in the world signing a contract a master services agreement from your creation that's 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 cool. That that's, is. That's kind of the, the recharges my battery. So do you consider yourself to be successful? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. Why I, not? I, uh, I do have a level of success, but uh, it's, I, I guess I always have that. It's kind of like a psychological thing for me. I always think that you know, I'm unworthy of being there or uh, somehow like lucked into it. And I've told you some stories where there's uh, some luck involved, right? So. Um, I'm always just kind of pushing myself. I don't ever think that I'm at the, at the pinnacle or even if I am there, like even on a fabulous show like you're putting on, it's like, Are you sure you want me on the show? I mean, <laughs> well, there's a, that, I think all of us as entrepreneurs deal with that imposter syndrome, which is what it's referred to as is like, that's we, a great way to say We that. have this idea that we're an imposter and people are going to find out we're not who they think we are. But, but in fact, we are successful. You are successful, Lance. I mean, you've, you've accomplished so many amazing things, but, but you've developed, and just like me, I've, all of us, and the people listening are the same way. We think they're going to figure out that I'm a fake, but we're not fakes. Like, we are the guy doing it. But who's the fake is the guy who sits around and doesn't do anything and pretends to be doing something. Yeah. Like you, you have succeeded and failed and you've succeeded more than you failed and you've accomplished the results you want. Cause actually the, the, the definition of success dictionary definition is accomplishing the desired outcome. So if you set out to de design Spintel as this foremost data analytics company for the music industry, if that's your outcome and you've achieved that outcome, 
therefore you're successful. That's what that means. But I appreciate the humility because you, like a lot of people who sit across from me on this show, they, they hedge, eh, you know, kind of, some people, yeah, I'm definitely successful and they, they have that, they've overcome the imposter syndrome, but a lot of us are still dealing with that and it comes across as, as true humility, not false humility, that I'm still working towards it. And I've talked to people who are worth, you know, nine, you know, nine figures sitting across from me and I've talked to people that are just barely in the millions and they're, they all have the same stories that they failed, they succeeded, they failed, they succeeded, and they're working towards a goal. And I see that you're working towards that, which is why I wanted you on the show. And I love your story. I love what you're doing. I love the connections you've made. Really appreciate I it. I love the, you know, the poker is such an interesting little <laughs> caveat to the whole thing, but I think everything you've talked about leads to success. Now, part of what I do, and feel free to relight your cigar, because I have not let you uh, enjoy your cigar. Absolutely. But I, but I, um, but I believe that there's these five keys that every entrepreneur has used to get to a level of success that they've experienced. And these five keys can unlock success for everybody. And I heard in your story all five keys. And I want to I want to pull those out and kind of in the story, kind of bring them out to the air. And I want you to tell me whether or not I'm reading this right. So the first key to success is passion. And there's two sides of passion. There's one side that's emotional, like I'm excited about poker, or I'm excited about real estate, or I'm excited about crypto. And I could see that you had an emotional connection to that. And I think in the music industry, even though you're not a musician yourself, that there's that level of emotional passion. But that's not necessarily the indicator of success. The other side of passion is the willingness to suffer and endure for a cause. And you have suffered and endured you suffered through the crashes the bitcoin you know not bitcoin but the crypto crashes the real estate crashes the economic crashes but you survived and suffered and endured through that that's passion do you agree that that's led to the level of success you've experienced today absolutely i'm a glutton for punishment (laughs) well you know it's funny that you know i say this almost in every show You, you know jesus when jesus went to the cross we refer to that as the passion of the christ mel gibson did the movie back in the early 2000s called the passion of the Christ. And it wasn't because he was excited. It was because he was willing. He was willing to do it because there was a greater cause. And I think entrepreneurs got turned down by every major uh, production studio. (laughs) And he had to spend every last dollar he had to get that project done. Yeah. Because he's passionate about it. That's right. That's what passion means. And that's what you're living out. The second, the second key to success is right place, right time. And I heard it in all of your stories, the right place, right time, especially you answering that phone call that day, right? Right place, yeah. right time. And that ties in with a third P, which is knowing the right people. And they, he, that guy, that in, that investor from California is not the only guy, but your guy needs a pizza, Nitsa. All these people played in right place, right time, right people to lead Lance Goodman to the level of success as an entrepreneur that he is today. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was all a journey too. Like all the failures and like getting you know 28 million ready to go vertical after I just made a couple million in real estate. Like, dang, that was easy. I'm just gonna double down and, you know, I've, I'm young as could be. Like, let's leverage it to the hilt and then just whoosh, crash everything. And uh, you know, and poker can be so heart wrenching, and crypto falling out. And it was all just to make me the man I am today. And being able to, you can almost throw anything at me and. You know, it's not gonna. It's it might rattle me a little bit, you know, but I'll figure out a way to get through it. I'll adjudicate whatever comes my way. We'll figure out the best course, and it was just it was a path to get me here. Yeah. If uh, a lot of people can have their first startup and 
it's a huge home run, and that's a great journey that was for them. But uh, I think, you know, to really be on this entrepreneurial path and this journey is, it takes so much fortitude, just like you're saying, like, just uh, being able to, there's so many times and family members and friends are like, Lance, you're a really smart guy. Why don't you just make a hundred grand a year and be happy? Yeah. Why aren't you married yet? And I'm like, well, I didn't want to put a wife through all of these crazy <laughs> things, first of all. And uh, that's, that's one of the reasons. And, uh, you know, I'm like, I question, I'm like, why don't I just sell insurance like a lot of my friends and, you know, make a hundred and a buck and a half and have a great life and do whatever you want and freedom. So there's a lot of you question yourself. You question, I loved how you put like the imposter syndrome because I think I've suffered from that every venture I've gone into because they're different verticals, right? So um, I'm not like a leading expert in any of them once I enter. And a lot of them are, no one really is. It's kind of the wild west in a lot of ways. Uh, but yeah, I've struggled with that. But now that like I'm in my late thirties and now I kind of, when I walk into a room, I know I'm meant to be there. I know I can hold my own. I know I've got a tiger by the tail, you know, cause I'm not going to walk in there and make an ask if I don't 100% believe in it and willing to do whatever it takes. And what prepared you for that, which is the fifth, fourth key, which is preparation is that going back to the pizza pizza day when you're, you're, you're 12 walking in scared to death asking that guy hey can i put up flowers for you and and like that all of that led up to prepare you to be the leader of spintel and to take this uh, global and to turn it into the world's foremost data analytics for for the music industry that prepared you for that and then the fifth p is plan and i want to ask you about this one specifically because when I say plan, a lot of people think, well, I mean business plan, and, and, and business plans have their place, and they're, if you're going to take on capital, you almost always have to have something written down, but that's not necessarily an indicator of success. So by plan, what I mean is, what, what was your plan to finance the thing? So for you, you've had all these different things. You had the real estate, and you, 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 it sounds like you didn't have a plan, but the guy calling you and spending, you know, making 60 grand that first day, and and him wiring you the hundred grand. But what about Spintel? What's the plan? What was the plan, the, the financial strategy to get that thing funded? Was it just the investors coming in or was there something else? So we had, um, I had some, some close friends. So it was Rob Dalton and I put up our own money to kind of get it to uh, a place where we're like, okay, we can do this. You know, just the due diligence it takes, some of like uh, just the pre-development work, just to even know if the tech's possible where we would get the data from. We actually flew up and uh, tried to do a deal with iHeartRadio just to have an API where you use their data and we just create a very sophisticated uh, analytics platform that would be complimentary to them. Uh, and at that time it was early and they didn't really have any interest and there's huge multinational, you know, big, big company that uh, they just kind of patted us on our little Tennessee heads and sent us back home and we had to come up with our own way to get the data. So I guess uh, going off on a little bit of a tangent, but um, well, what, where'd you want me to bring that back to? Yeah, well, like what's your strategy? What was your financial strategy to make this work? Because that, that building that app has is, is got to be financially... Self-funding until I was confident in taking somebody else's money. Like I, I really have a problem taking outside investors' capital 
unless I'm all in myself. Like, and I always pitch it as like a very speculative thing if it is, right? Like we don't have any proof of concept. We don't have any revenue. We have no clients. How, a, you know, usually a tech startup operates. And a lot of Silicon Valley, you know, VCs, and they all know this, but in Nashville, there's not a lot of capital that's like that. So you almost have to have angel investors, and we had a lot of that, but we were also able to put our own money, you know, where our mouth is, too, to get it to a point. So we were fully invested, and, um, and Rob Dalton, my co-founder, has been phenomenal. He had all the industry connections. He was legend, uh, and we basically created what was in his mind onto a platform that could be uh, scaled and sold to everybody on these little intricities that he had to get a competitive advantage. So uh, the outside capital part, if, I, if there's any young entrepreneurs out there, is like um, if you're starting with nothing and you want to be an entrepreneur, you can still do it that way too. But, and that's where you come into where relationships. You've got to have a couple of solid relationships that will you know uh that are willing to roll the dice with you yeah rolling the right people yeah and that's and that's the key and the ones that are it's almost like a plan i think all all entrepreneurs and i feel like uh that way from talking with you and myself is like any young person coming up that has got the audacity to try to start something from nothing or try and start uh like we're almost drawn to helping them right mm -hmm. because we appreciate any young person that has you know, got the fortitude it takes to, to even attempt. So um, it's funny. I mean, I had one in Nashville that I just so happened to luck into in a lot of ways and partnered with his son on my real estate deals. And he backed me in seven things in a row. And some were just an idea that I had. And, uh, you know, he, he knows I was a good arbitrary, you know, purveyor of capital. And uh, I'd always put myself last almost in all of these deals, which that's a good way to get investors too, is tell them you, you won't pay yourself until there's something to be, uh, you know, a piece of pie there to even split. So I don't, I don't recommend that, but if you can do that, <laughs> also, also investors want you to, you know, not be on a ramen noodle diet. Right. Well, so, you got there, there's a perception that, that there is some level of success so that other people want to tag along. What, so, so a lot of people that are listening to this show, um, most are entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs, they're wanting to do something. And so I want you to speak to those entrepreneurs, the people that are in their car right now, they're driving, they, they, they've got an idea, it's burning a hole in their brain, they think about it when they go to bed, they wake, think about it when they wake up, they're out walking their dog, they're running on the treadmill, and they're like, I got this idea, but I'm not, I'm, I got a pretty cushy opportunity, you know, I'm making good money at my corporate job, but I don't know how to, I, what do I do? What would you say as a successful serial entrepreneur who've, who've developed and built all these companies and now Spintel is growing in this huge company, what would you get, what advice would you give to that person right now? You know, what I see a lot is it's not a one or a zero discussion, right? It's like, well, I've got this great job and I've got these two kids and a wife and I can't take this crazy risk of leaving this to, to go pursue this amazing idea that I have. Well, it's not one or the other. It's, uh, it's literally take the next step in your off time, in your weekend, start putting a business plan together, start doing some market research, uh, maybe pull in another passionate entrepreneur that could see your vision that's willing to put in some free sweat equity to get it to a point to where it's you know, worthy of your risking for your family, leaving a comfortable uh, life to pursue a dream and a passion. You can do so much legwork and, and move 
the ball forward in so many capacities without any money of just, and, and not only that, but if you are going to be this entrepreneur and the founder and the CEO, make sure you're ready for that. Like no one's just a CEO. Like I still don't think I'm a good CEO, right? But I, I've got enough of the legs covered to where I know how to surround myself with people that I necessarily can't handle myself or that are really great at what they do. So I'm a good judge of people and I'm a good judge of what I need to succeed. But I guess going back to the original point is just take the next step. I've got one of my best friends from college. Uh, he's worked um, at a uh, brokering freight for like 15 years of uh, this big freight brokerage company. And he's like, Lance, I got this app that could streamline so much. It could, you could, you know, broker to independent drivers. Uh, you, they'd make, you know, 20% more money. We'd get a bigger cut. And I'm like, that's great. Send me a business plan. And he's like, well, I haven't gotten that. I'm like, well, you do have like 12 kids, so I understand that. But if you want to do that, take the next step. So then he took the next step and he put together a decent business plan. Uh, and then we worked through, um, you know, a pro forma of how it's going to make money from an individual transaction to forecasting, you know, how he could grow and scale. So it's just, and that didn't cost him any money. It just cost him his time and sweat. And that also tells you if you're prepared to take the next step is, You've got to do thousands of hours of due diligence and know the ins and outs. And that's really, if you're not willing to do that, you're not going to be successful. Yeah. Well, how would people get in touch with you? They can reach out to me. I'm an open book. I love uh, helping anyone who you know wants to, like I said, take the leap and, and to try and do something. There's so many ways you can uh, you know, latch on to like franchises and different things. If you are a hard worker, a smart worker, I mean, you are in high demand. You can be from anywhere. You can have any skin pigmentation, any sexual orientation. None of the identity politics matter if you can add value to a company. And that's all you need to know. If you, if you add value, uh, go out there and try. And don't be scared. I've been told no so many times. I've been laughed at. I've been called crazy. I mean, it's, and, and some of them by my best friends, but I like that. You know, I like it when they, they have to bust me up the most. If I, if I really got something and they're not, you know, taking shots at me, I know I got something. But have great friends, have a great network of people you can run things by, and just surround yourself with successful people that knows what it takes. So what's the website for Spintel? Uh, it's, so it's spintel.io. Um, my email is lance at spintel.io. And it's S-P-I-N-T-E-L. Yes. Dot IO. Dot IO. All right, good, good. Well, any, any final comments or thoughts you want to leave for the audience today? Uh, take the risk. Take, take a leap. Uh, especially if you're young, you can always recover, and you'll learn so much, and it'll just put just like happened to me. Uh, you know, uh, unbelievable ups and downs. Uh, I have, like, this bipolar uh, career progression that's pretty epic. And, uh, but it, it toughened me up and I learned lessons from all of it. And it, this is like uh, Spintel's a culmination of all the lessons I've learned and how to uh, really pull something off on a global scale. So, and it's such a fun ride. It's such a fun journey. Take the risk. Take the risk. Well, Lance, thank you for being on the show, man. This has been, I love, I love, I'm, gl I'm glad that we met each other. I'm glad me that too. you're here on the show. This has been a phenomenal story, and I hope that people take to heart what you're talking about. Take that risk. Well, I love what you do, and you help so many young entrepreneurs, and you've got so many programs, and that's, that's something that's crucial. Like, uh, people ask me all the time, it's like, so how do I take the next step? 
there are guys like you out there that can like streamline their efforts so much and instead of piddling around for a year, have a strategic plan to take, take the next steps to get it to where you can have outside investments and take it to the next level. And so really uh, honored that you had me on your show and appreciate all you do. Well, thank you, Lance. Well, there you have it, guys. I mean, it's every, every time we have this show and I sit across the table or across the, across the room from somebody like Lance, I'm even more emboldened in my belief that entrepreneurs are the ones that change the world. That we, we as entrepreneurs are the ones that make the difference. And if you want to start that thing and you don't know what to do, this is your opportunity. Like Lance said, take the risk. And I'm gonna normally I end the show with with my success assessment, but I'm gonna I'm gonna actually skip that. If you want to know what that is, you can go to the other show and listen to the end. But actually, I want to make an offer. If you go to resultsuniversity.org right now. There, I've got a complete startup guide for entrepreneurs. It's everything you need to know, soup to nuts, to go from startup to success in six months or less. And it's based on my real world experience and it's based on information just like what Lance talked about. How do you start? What, what do you do day one? How do you set a vision? How do you put together an LLC paperwork? How do you do an operating agreement? How do you take funding? What do you, how do you do this? My complete startup guide is for people just like you. It's 11 lessons, plus there's a bonus lesson and ebook that you get if you sign up through this link. Go to resultsuniversity.org slash root. The resultsuniversity.org slash root. You can go straight there, buy the course. It's less than 500 bucks. I mean, you paid more for that than drinks last weekend, I'm pretty sure. But, but you gotta <laughs> go take this course because it'll give you everything that you need to know to get you off the bench and take the risk, just like what Lance talked about. So thank you for tuning in. Please leave us a good review if you like the show. If you haven't watched this on YouTube, make sure you go to youtube.com slash C slash The Real Jason Duncan. That's youtube.com slash C as in channel slash The Real Jason Duncan. You subscribe to the playlist there on The Root of All Success and you get every Thursday, we've got our episodes drop every single Thursday and I would love to have you subscribe, hit the bell icon so that you get notified of all the content that I put out. And I do two or three other videos a week that, are not, that, that aren't the podcast videos, but I do videos on wisdom for business leaders, Friday sales tips. I do other videos about entrepreneurs just like you to help you get to the results that you want. I'm the real Jason Duncan. I want to thank you for being here with me on the show today for listening. I appreciate you listening. We're honored to be part of the C-Suite Radio Network. Thank you, C-Suite, for supporting this show and putting it out on all of the podcast players all around the world. Next week, we get together again with another very successful entrepreneur. We're going to be talking about his or her success journey and how they did it and how they applied these five keys of success of passion, right place, right time, knowing the right people, preparation and plan. So until then, remember, Jesus is King. Thank you for listening to another edition of The Root of All Success with The Real Jason Duncan. If you've enjoyed this week's episode, we invite you to visit therootofallsuccess.com to access the show notes and other helpful resources. Take charge of your business. Grow it from great to incredible. Join us again next time here on The Root of All Success. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.